Hi, I'm Will McHenry, the Program Associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with, with us today is Miguel Troitsky, an Associate Professor and Dean of the School of Government and International Affairs at MGMU uh, University in Moscow, who recently co-authored and co-edited the book Tug of War, Negotiating Security in Eurasia. Uh, Mikhail, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Ponars podcast. I know the book titled Negotiating Security in Eurasia that you co-authored and co-edited just came out at CIGI McGill University Press. Can you share the main takeaways from this book? And um, can negotiation really help in dealing with controversies in post-Soviet Eurasia? Well, um, I'm happy to be with you, Will, and uh, uh, thank you for your interest in the book. Uh, now, uh, we think Eurasia is uh, a very notable uh, region when it comes to the analysis of negotiation, and first and most, uh, first and foremost, for the wide variety of negotiating actors uh, who are at play uh, in uh, Eurasia, uh, including post-Soviet Eurasia and its immediate uh, neighborhood. You have uh, a global superpower, you have a number of large revisionist powers, you have uh, a number of smaller nations, uh, also some separatist movements, quasi-states, uh, integration blocs, they all uh, come together to uh, engage in cooperation and conflict uh, and uh, quite often uh, negotiation to overcome uh, those uh, conflicts with mixed success so far. And all, all of that makes the study of negotiation in Eurasia uh, exciting and productive uh, from the perspective of uh, lessons uh, for both theory and practice of uh, negotiation. Uh, now, and we are asking ourselves as we look at the process of uh, negotiation underway uh, in Eurasia on some of the most uh, contentious uh, security issues, we're asking ourselves, uh, when do negotiations happen? Uh, how the positions of the sides in a number of conflicts across Eurasia uh, have evolved during negotiation, why? And we are also trying to see if negotiation uh, as a mode of collective uh, decision-making can diffuse conflicts and can lay the basis for sustainable deals to resolve uh, long-standing disputes. Uh, so we find in our book, uh, and that's a collective volume with some 10 uh, contributors uh, writing chapters uh, for us, uh, we uh, find that negotiation in Eurasia uh, could be and has indeed been effective in both uh, highly antagonistic and also less intense uh, coordination contexts. Uh, but negotiation has also been ineffective in both these uh, contexts. Uh, for example, uh, negotiation did help to stop the wars in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, back in the 90s and later in, in Georgia in 2008, uh, also to, to an extent in eastern Ukraine in 2015, but at the same time negotiation didn't help to uh, stemmed the very intense controversy over Crimea in 2014. There was uh, almost no negotiation uh, about Crimea uh, back then. 
and uh, negotiation has so far not been very helpful uh, to sort out uh, the, the current uh, contradictions between Russia and the United States in post-Soviet Eurasia and beyond. Uh, and if you look at less intense contexts uh, where uh, you just want to, uh, where the parties just want to find a way to coordinate their, their policies, their efforts, and there's, uh, there's less antagonism uh, involved in, 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 in that situation compared to the conflicts that I just described, in all those less intense contexts, negotiation uh, did help to keep the differences, uh, for example, to keep the differences on the enlargement of NATO uh, under control for about two decades uh, before the sides uh, fell out over Ukraine in 2014. Uh, in, in, in those games of coordination, negotiation in Eurasia also helped to resolve uh, the, the controversy over China's borders with former Soviet republics. Uh, but at the same time, negotiation didn't help to uh, define a legal framework for the Caspian Sea or reach a sustainable solution for uh, most uh, of the uh, post-Soviet Eurasian uh, ethno-political conflicts, be it in Moldova or in Georgia or in, in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and, and so forth. Uh, so we, we also find in our book that in Eurasia, uh, status and identity are very important uh, obstacles to negotiation, and they are indeed no less important uh, than the distribution of forces among uh, the negotiating parties. Uh, for example, the European Union and Russia may uh, not have uh, uh, plenty to quarrel about uh, in post-Soviet Eurasia, and yet they, uh, they uh, are keen, that they have been keen to assert their status as effective problem solvers uh, and mediators in post-Soviet Eurasia, uh, and they didn't consider uh, uh, some, you know, some uh, very important uh, uh, options uh, for diffusing uh, conflicts while they, they were keen on uh, asserting their status. For example, the European Union never considered involving Russia in the negotiation over Ukraine Association Agreement. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, so uh, th that kind of shows that, uh, that the pursuit of status uh, can indeed uh, make the parties blind to some very rational uh, options of engaging in in uh, negotiation, and and the same, uh, and the same uh, uh, happens with the, uh, with with uh, identity politics. Uh, if you think in terms of identity, you'll see that the controversy over NATO enlargement uh, goes back to Russia's choice of identity in the early 90s as a foreign policy successor to the Soviet Union. Uh, so, uh, and and of course, uh, NATO's perception of Russia uh, goes back to roughly. Uh, the same period, uh, uh, NATO was clearly hedging its uh, its uh, uh, the, the risks of uh, of Russia becoming resurgent when uh, it decided uh, that it really wants to enlarge back in the 1990s. Uh, or if you look at Armenia and Turkey, you'll see that the that their reconciliation is now hampered uh, primarily by the uh, by by identity politics in in both countries. So um, these are basically our findings, uh, and uh, 
Uh, one is that uh, negotiation can be helpful uh, in both highly antagonistic conflicts and in situations of, uh, of lack of coordination. Uh, and, and secondly, that uh, identity uh, and status are, uh, are quite uh, are, are the sources of contention that can prevent uh, successful uh, negotiation from uh, taking off, uh, despite the clear uh, the clear benefit that uh, those negotiations could um, could rationally bring to the uh, conflicting parties. Great, thank you so much. It looks as if the pattern same pattern consistently repeats in U.S. Russia relations whereby a honeymoon under a new president in one of the countries soon gives way to a new round of mutual acrimony or even conflict. We saw this in the early 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s. Now that honeymoon seems not to even come to fruition, are we doomed to repeat that kind of dynamic, and what are the lessons we could draw from the quarter century of engagement between Washington and Moscow? Uh, well, uh there, there, there are a number of lessons uh, to be uh, learned from uh, U.S.-Russia uh, uh, relationships. A relationship in uh, uh, over the last uh, uh, twenty or twenty-five years, and the, the first lesson uh, uh, that I think uh, accounts uh, for much of that uh, uh, dynamic of uh, a few resets followed by, uh, by deep dives uh, in the relationship. The first lesson, uh, I think, uh, is that uh, the, the uh, vicious and the virtuous circles of U.S.-Russia relationship uh, have been uh, uh, much more powerful uh, over those uh, two decades than they are usually thought to be. Uh, the, the cooperative uh, push uh, usually outlived its initial uh, rationale, uh, and, uh, and so did the, the push uh, for conflict. Uh, the, the controversy uh, also had its uh, own uh, powerful uh, inertia. So it has been uh, more difficult to turn the ship of uh, confrontation uh, towards the thaw in the relationship and, and vice versa than, than uh, one might have thought uh, when engaging in uh, both uh, resets and uh, new rounds of, uh, of conflict between the United States and Russia. And both those resets and, and new Cold Wars uh, uh, die hard in U.S.-Russia uh, relations. They, they carry tremendous amounts of inertia, so it requires a lot of uh, consistent uh, effort to really uh, shift uh, for, for the sides to shift from one state of affairs to, to the other in their relationship. And uh, this, uh, this inertia, uh, I think, uh, may be explained by the now fashionable new behaviors theories uh, that suggest that there's uh, always a bias among people uh, with uh, more intense national attachments uh, to attribute malign intentions to countries that they dislike and attribute benign intentions uh, to the countries that they like, uh, if the behavior of these two types of countries uh, uh, is the same. Uh, so uh, once the, the Russians, both the policymakers and the general public, are explained that the United States can indeed be a friend of Russia, as it happened, for example, in the aftermath of 9-11, and then during the, the most recent reset, then uh, the, the, the Russian public starts uh, supporting more cooperation with the United States, and the same applies to the U.S. public. 
so the reset itself after the, the Georgia war became possible, um, I would say thanks to the staying 9-11 inertia. And, and only when the tide of mutual uh, recriminations and prejudices uh, turned in 2012, uh, uh, did the ship of cooperation gradually turn towards uh, a new round of conflict. So I, I would say that's the dynamic uh, of the interplay between uh, the, the uh, government approaches to the mutual relationship and the public opinion that really accounts for that powerful, uh, powerful inertia in the relationship. Uh, and uh, uh, I, uh, I would also say that the second lesson uh, uh, that uh, we can derive from the experience of uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship over the past two decades is that uh, despite all costs of, uh, uh, that despite all, all those statements uh, by Russian and some U.S. decision makers that they have to consider mutual potentials, uh, of Russia and the United States uh, because they can figure out mutual intentions. Despite that, th those, uh, those statements, uh, the, the balance of power dynamic uh, really hardly ever played a role in uh, uh, Russia's foreign policy making, including towards the United States and vice versa. Uh, I think that Russia really neither consistently uh, balanced the United States nor bandwagoned with the United States. There were indeed periods of uh, bandwagoning, uh, uh, especially in the early, uh, in, in, in the early uh, aughts and also then in 2009 and, and 11. Uh, uh, and remember, for example, Russia's abstention on the resolution 1973 that opened the door to the removal of Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, and the, the common narrative in Russia uh, is, of course, that it was the balance of power logic that changed uh, Washington's attitudes towards Moscow. When Russia was weak, that narrative goes, the United States didn't worry about Russia, but when Russia researched on the world stage in the, in the uh, beginning from, from the year 2000, then the United States became obstructionist and ending up waging a, a covered war against Russia to change its uh, regime, that narrative. Uh, suggests, uh, but the United States also treated Russia differently during the periods of uh, of both Russia's weakness and strength, uh, including uh, including in the in the previous uh, decade. For example, the United States was far less dismissive of Russia in the mid uh, 90s uh, than it could have been given Russia's uh, weakness at that at that time. And and now, despite Russia being a resurgent actor. The United States is clearly prepared to kind of contain Russia and, uh, and even accept the, the brinkmanship uh, challenge. Uh, and Russia itself did bandwagon with the United States at the peak of U.S. influence in the, in the world uh, early in the previous decade, uh, helping the Bush administration to deal with the Taliban uh, in, in Afghanistan, for example. Uh, so the U.S.-Russia relationship, uh, I would say, and that's a very important uh, lesson, is uh, not all about the balance of power. It's also about the balance of identity and the balance of uh, domestic politics and some tactical uh, uh, aspirations uh, of the leadership in, in both countries. Thank you. And finally, in your recent Ponar's policy memo, you make the case for ambiguous agreements in U.S.-Russia relations. Can you briefly briefly explain what that means? Uh, well, uh, if you um, 
if you look um, uh, at situations in which you have two actors engaged in, in a conflict, uh, and each of those two actors has uh, its own uh, set of assumptions and beliefs and uh, also possibly values, uh, that are in, in sharp contradiction with the assumptions uh, and beliefs of the other side, then can you really expect uh, negotiation between those two sides, uh, uh, sort of championing different sets of uh, values and assumptions to actually be successful, to deliver a certain result in terms of uh, easing the tensions, in terms of providing a common sense of strategic perspective? Uh, for both those sides. Uh, uh, one would say negotiation might not be uh, uh, useful in, in that kind of situations um, uh, and that uh, the, the balance of power is going to uh, determine the, the outcome of the, of the conflict uh, in those cases when uh, there seems to be very little ground for for uh, mutual engagement and for actually for a gi for give and take uh, that uh, lies at the heart of successful negotiation, and so we uh, so the United States and Russia uh, at the moment uh, look to be those two actors uh, who have uh, different sets of uh, assumptions on on the state of affairs in both world politics and in in uh, in the bilateral relationship, for example what uh, is uh, progress to the United States uh, carries tremendous risks uh, from the Russian perspective. If you take the notion of um, regime change or democratic transition for Russia, that, uh, uh, um, that can be tantamount to chaos. Uh, it's the, the mainstream thinking uh, among Russian policymakers clearly uh, clearly uh, portrays uh, um, any change of regime uh, in, in a certain country, especially in post-Soviet Eurasia, as a result of a popular movement, uh, as a major risk of, of chaos uh, uh, in, in a situation of, uh, of anarchy that uh, can be expected to uh, set in after you know, a revolution or a coup happens. But the United States would look at, the, at, that, at that same situation uh, quite differently, uh, assuming that uh, uh, there will be, um, you know, there will be light at the end of that tunnel, uh, that uh, the removal of an authoritarian government uh, in, in, a, in a particular country uh, would uh, uh, eventually lead to democratization, to the growth uh, of, um, you know, of political institutions, uh, of democratic processes that would, uh, that would benefit the economic uh, advancement of that country, that would make its citizens happier. So what is uh, anathema to Russia um, in the form of chaos? Uh, would be seen as progress by the United States, and that's just one example. You can uh, easily, you can easily find uh, plenty of uh, of diametrically opposed uh, uh, perspectives on uh, similar trends uh, on, on the on the world political and economic trends, uh, uh, and in 
that situation, can Russia and the United States really engage in good faith negotiations uh, on the sources of uh, contradictions between the two sides? And uh, I argue in my policy memo uh, that indeed, if you allow for uh, the outcome of negotiation to uh, uh, to uh, not if you allow the outcome of the negotiation to be open-ended, to uh, sort of evolve uh, in time, uh, and uh, um, according to some, you know, random factors, some uh, be, to, to, to be shaped by, uh, by the developments that are difficult to perceive, to, to foresee at this particular moment, at the current moment, then uh, you probably can uh, close deals even between these highly uh, antagonistic uh, players. Uh, I mean that uh, if, uh, of course, uh, the, the outcome of, uh, of a negotiation uh, will be uh, perceived uh, very differently uh, by uh, each of the sides uh, if uh, this outcome is predetermined. Uh, at the uh, during the negotiation, but if you allow that uh, outcome uh, to actually evolve uh, in the future, uh, you can make it acceptable uh, to both sides, and you can uh, you can uh, uh, make them amenable to to a deal uh, at a, at a certain point. Uh, a good example uh, is. Uh, negotiation on German uh, unification uh, back in the 1990, when uh, the sides were able to uh, make a deal on the unification uh, while uh, keeping the issue of uh, potential NATO enlargement uh, towards the east, the inclusion into NATO of, uh, of uh, Soviet allies uh, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, uh, sort of an open-ended process. Uh, both sides at the end of that negotiation uh, in the fall of 1990 uh, were sure that uh, the time was on their side, that eventually uh, the situation with uh, NATO enlargement will play out to their favor, uh, while the West, the, the the, the West, German, West Germany and the United States and other NATO allies believe that uh, at the end of the day uh, they will be able to uh, they would be able to pursue NATO enlargement if the situation uh, were, were ripe for that. Uh, the Soviet leadership believed that it uh, uh, um, received some assurances, uh, or at least that there was a common understanding between uh, the USSR. And, and the West uh, uh, about, uh, the, about future NATO enlargement. And that mutual understanding was that uh, NATO was not going to pursue uh, enlargement in the foreseeable future. Uh, and at that point, uh, the jury was still out on NATO enlargement. So while Germany was peacefully uh, reunified, uh, the, the uh, Soviet Union and the West uh, um, sort of went out of the negotiation uh, room believing that they achieved their, their objectives. 
And that was uh, far more preferable to the situation of no agreement of, on, on German enlargement. And then eventually uh, time, uh, uh, with time the situation evolved and, uh, and the, the dispute uh, was uh, resolved in the, in, by, by mid-1990s when, uh, when the new administrations in both uh, Russia and the United States uh, uh, more or less decided to pursue negotiations uh, on on the process of NATO enlargement. And all by uh, and although NATO enlargement eventually happened, Russia uh, got a sweetener in the form of the founding act, uh, and you know the situation continued to evolve. So my uh, basically the the point of my uh, policy memo is that. We could still in we could still in think in, in those terms of open-ended agreements of the agreements that are constructively ambiguous uh, and are uh, open to uh, and are um, uh, are going to be resolved by uh, future developments that are uh, difficult to predict at that moment. So you make a deal in the expectation that uh, the that. Um, the time is essentially on your side, uh, or that uh, the eventual outcome that is not clear at this particular point uh, is uh, going to be um, in your favor. Uh, for example, you can set the rules uh, for uh, for further for the further further enlargement of NATO uh, by, for example, agreeing that. Uh, while Russia will uh, not try to uh, destabilize the nations that uh, might uh, want or be committed to joining NATO, uh, NATO in its turn uh, would uh, discuss with Russia the net security benefit uh, that it is going to get from accepting a new, uh, a new member. And if that net security benefit is uh, related to Russia or its uh, policies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, NATO and its candidates, uh, then Russia uh, may be given a chance to sort out those contradictions between before uh, the decision on further enlargement is taken. So that is also a kind of an open-ended process, the process, uh, the outcome of which uh, we are not able to predict uh, at, at, at the time of uh, of negotiation, uh, but uh, also negotiation itself uh, allows us to diffuse some of the some of the uh, sharp tensions that surround the uh, the uh, issue of NATO enlargement at this time. Fascinating, Mikhail. Thank you again for joining us for this Ponars podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure.